Jesus, I thank you that you have been good to us this week. We have seen a picture of God that is reasonable, that is attractive, that allows Adventism to make sense and find its power. And Lord, I pray that none of us would forget what we've been hearing this week. I've been blessed. And uh, Lord, I just pray that this special thing that you're doing in this place right here would not be limited to right here. Lord, I pray that this would just be the beginning. And so as we have one last message together, sweet Jesus, do something in this place that none of us will soon forget. For your glory, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's message is entitled, A Tale of Two Journeys. Can I tell you the story behind this message? I got one yes. That's good enough. And so I was planning on preaching, I would, this is years ago, uh, 2013, probably, spring of 2013. And I was asked to preach at a local church, so I did. They asked for my sermon info on Wednesday. Oh, this is easy, I'm going to preach a sermon I've preached before. It's on the topic of devotions, growing your devotional life, or something like that. I think devoted John at the seminar, the first seminar I did here on Thursday. So I typed that in, put the scripture, put the song and uh, the problem is, God said, that's not what you're preaching. And I said, no, this is what I'm preaching because I don't have anything else ready and this, this makes sense. That didn't last long, in case you're wondering. And he won. He generally does. And sometimes you're limping for the rest of your life after some of those wrestling matches. But he, uh, he won. And what he told me to preach was something that I literally don't know what this is about. So rewind about two years in January of 2011, David Asherick was preaching at 3 a.m. and I used to live near there and so he came to visit me because uh, I had just graduated from the Arise program. No, this is 2012. Um, January 2012, he was, so he baptized me, he, he was coming to visit, so he's like, hey, let's go get something to eat. And I tell him about a theme. One of the things that I did soon after I graduated Arise was I just wrote a commentary in the book of Matthew, and don't ask for it, because I'm not quite sure where it is, and it's probably not all that good anyway. Um, but I, I just wanted to take a time to just kind of deepen my Bible study. So I'd read chapter 1 multiple times, then I'd read chapter 1 and then chapter 2 multiple times. So I read chapter 1 kind of leading in once into chapter 2, then I read chapter 2 multiple times. Then the next day I read chapter 2 once, and then chapter 3, multi- you, you kind of get the, the premise here. And so I was just writing a commentary on Matthew, kind of collecting themes. And I thought this really, I saw this really cool thing in Matthew 8 and I believe Matthew 14. And so I shared it with Dave and I was like, hey, look at what I found. He's like, oh, that's cool. You should call that like a tale of two journeys or something. It's like, I don't even know. He's like, you should write a sermon on it and call it a tale of two journeys or something. I was like, ah, I don't really know what it's about. I just think it's cool that there's these kind of parallel journeys. And so I have no intention of preaching it. It's just kind of on a shelf in my mind for quite a while. So you're... But 15 months goes by. We have staff meeting the morning of that Wednesday when I send the sermon information to this local church. And it dawns on me, it's about faith. But again, I don't really know all of what it's about. I'm not going to write a sermon on it yet, but that's the case. And so Wednesday evening, when I'm writing this little sermon to the pastor, and God says, that's not what you're preaching. You're preaching on this. I don't know what it's about, Lord. Like, yeah, it's faith, but I I don't get it. And... Anyway, he won, and so I'm staring at this cursor in my email. Well, what do I like? What do I call the thing? Like, what's the scripture reading? Like, where are the song? I don't know. And so I was like, well, I'll just call it what Dave calls it. So, A Tale of Two Journeys, 
And I'll use one of these texts as a scripture reading, and I just guessed on two songs. Had no idea. And so I, I preached it. I sit down. Anytime I give God time, God gives me something to give the people. I think this is, this is basically the point of the fish and the loaves. That the disciples felt like they had nothing to offer these people. Right? How can we possibly feed these people? I don't have what is necessary to bless these people is what they're telling Jesus when he says, you give them something to eat. And we don't have it, Jesus. And then he asked them, well, what do you have? Well, I mean, all I have is this little thing here. Bring it to me. And when they bring it to Jesus, Jesus makes it enough. When they brought what little they had to Jesus, Jesus made it enough. In fact, more than enough. And to make it clear that God is faithful in his provision, he makes the disciples be the vehicle through which the miracle is given to the people. And then he makes the disciples pick up the after effects of that miracle to remind them that it's not about what you have. It's about bringing what you have to me, and I make it enough. And so I didn't have much to offer that day. But I preached the service, so anyway, I gave God time. God gave me something, which you'll hear this morning. And I give the recording to a buddy of mine who had reached out to me, who was really wrestling at that stage in his life. And God literally used that message to reestablish that guy in our church and to revive him. It answered direct questions in his experience that he was wrestling with. I had no say in that. I didn't want to preach that message. I didn't even know what it was about. And it was a good reminder to me that God is faithful and that what God is calling, God is not so much concerned about the why on my end or even the how on my end. He's concerned that I'm committed to the what. If I'm committed to what God wants, God will make sure that it happens. He'll make a way, he'll make it make sense, but what I need to do is commit to doing what he's asked me to do. And it was a lesson for me as well. So this morning's message is entitled, A Tale of Two Journeys. That title is borrowed. <laughs> All right, so in Matthew chapter 8, leading into Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is doing some scandalous stuff. Like this guy comes in and just starts messing with Judaism, and it makes people uncomfortable. Because in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, not Matthew's, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus starts with these crazy statements like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Just imagine the audacity of some young rabbi saying, I know what everybody's been teaching you in church, but let me tell you something else. How do you think that's going to go over, right? Just imagine some, you know, some 20-something-year-old comes in and comes into your pulpit of your church and says, yeah, I know your pastor's been telling you this, but here's what I say. Right? Again, put yourself in the headspace of what's actually being said, and it, it takes greater meaning. So anyway, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, and it's not that that isn't true, but I say to you, even more. Right? You've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say that if you look at a woman to lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus didn't diminish the law. He brought a deeper magnitude, like a deeper understanding of the law, and, and so forth. So anyway, Jesus comes in, and he's basically taking the worldview of the Jewish nation and just turning this thing upside down, or maybe right side up. Regardless, he's kind of really challenging the worldview of the nation. And then Jesus is just doing some scandalous stuff. We get to Matthew chapter 8, if you want to turn there. You probably already did. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at a few things here, what Jesus is doing, because this, I think, will give us a better understanding of where we need to go this morning. Matthew chapter 8. So in Matthew chapter 8, the first thing he does after he finishes this whole, you know, teaching that kind of challenges the views of the nation, then he cleanses a leper. Now, this guy says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus says, I am willing, 
be cleansed. But he doesn't just say something. You know what he also does? Jesus reaches out and touches this man. You know why Jesus did this? To restore his dignity. To bring intimacy back into this man's life. Because you were completely deprived of community, of dignity, and intimacy whenever you grow up or whenever you have leprosy. No hugs, no handshakes. And Jesus didn't just say something. Jesus didn't just heal the man's flesh. He healed the man's soul. He healed the man's heart. And restored this guy. But Jews aren't supposed to do that. Because that's going to make you unclean. So Jesus is doing stuff that Jews ought not to be doing. Then we see the next thing is that he heals a centurion's servant. Well, that's kind of a problem because those guys are jerks. We don't like Romans. We certainly don't like centurions, right? They're like these corrupt law enforcement guys that we don't want in our community, right? We have to carry their armor a mile just because they say so. It's just this horrible situation. And yet this guy is willing to heal a centurion's servant? And then the audacity, not only to heal a centurion's servant, but the fact that Jesus, when the centurion says, look, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my house. Just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word and he'll be healed. This guy understands faith better than most of our own people. And certainly most of the people in Jesus' day. Just say the word, Jesus, and that's enough. I don't need visible proof. If the word of God says it, it's already done. Just speak the word, Jesus. And he does. And Jesus says, I've not seen a faith like this in all of Israel. So just imagine, right, when they have like the student of the month, right, citizen of the month, faith haver of the nation award, it's not given to a Jew. It's given to this guy, right? I'm telling you, Jesus is just messing stuff up, guys. And then we get to this next situation where uh, many are healed in the evening who are filled with demons. They're unclean spirits. They got all kinds of stuff they're going on. And then in Matthew chapter 8, later after this, this guy comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And you would assume Jesus is going to say, hey, that's great. You know what Jesus says? I don't even have a home, man. I'm homeless. And the disciples had to be thinking, this guy's crazy. Like, Someone wants to follow you, and you're giving them reasons not to follow you. Why would you do that? Right? Jesus is off telling people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Like, this is the worst way to get disciples. Like, clearly this guy didn't go to seminary. Like, he obviously this guy didn't. And then someone else comes up and says, Lord, let me first bury my father, and then I'll follow you. And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. You're just thinking, like, Jesus is just this, he's this disruptor, Right? My friend Jared Thurman loves this idea of disruption. And so then we get to our actual story. But it seems to me, what I'm kind of recognizing throughout this whole narrative is that Jesus seems to be more worried about the faith of the people than he is their lineage. I don't care how clean the paper trail is between you and Abraham. What really matters the most to Jesus is the topic of faith. It's of paramount importance to Jesus, the topic of faith. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, whenever Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this commotion going on. The disciples look humiliated. The religious leaders are mocking them. And there's this boy wallowing around on the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus says, what's the deal, man? The guy says, look, I brought my son to your, your, your disciples, and he couldn't heal them. And then Jesus says something. When I was a baby Christian, I first read this, I thought, man, Jesus is so hard on this guy. 
He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And then I came to understand he wasn't upset with the man. He was upset with his own disciples. And because they say, well, why couldn't we heal him, Jesus? And he says, because of your unbelief, your lack of faith. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. Just imagine being the disciples in this situation, right? You're pretty convinced that you can do this because Jesus said, go cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick, do your thing, fellas. And so they're assuming we we got this. Jesus isn't here, but we can do it. And so the guy lays the boy at the feet of the disciples, and they say, demons, be gone. And he continues to wallow around on the ground, foaming at the mouth. Well, this is embarrassing. Um, maybe they just didn't hear us. Demons, be gone. Nothing. You'd feel like a complete loser. Total failure. We were wrong about everything. And the Pharisees are there to rub their noses in it. Totally discouraged. And then Jesus comes in and and grills the guys. And you think, what on earth is going on here? Jesus is wanting to make it abundantly clear to them, fellas, you missed the point. You do not have faith. You do not believe. You don't understand the core ingredient of what is necessary here. And what I come to see here is that our unbelief actually limits God. Our unbelief limits what God can do and what he longs to do. We also see in two other places where Jesus actually cries in Scripture. Luke chapter 19, when he's coming into Jerusalem and he's weeping over an impenitent city, weeping not just for what was, but for what could have been. The faith of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and what could have been. We also see in John chapter 11, Jesus cries at the unbelief of the people and they say, couldn't he have done something about this? Then we had the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Did you know that our unbelief makes God cry? Because it's an act of distrust. Ella White says this in Signs of the Times, April 14, 1881. She says, Faith is the living power that presses through every barrier, overrides all obstacles, and plants its banner in the heart of the enemy's camp. I love this language. It's tenacious. Right? It reminds me of David's mighty man when David is longing for water from his favorite well. And he, he says it out loud. Oh, that I can have water from my favorite well. And these crazy fellas, three of them, just go blasting through the enemy lines. They get the water. They blast back through the enemy lines. They come back and bring the water to David. And David's like, I, I can't drink this. This is the blood of my own men. I can't believe those guys were that crazy. I just meant I want to go home. I didn't know you were going to do this. My days, fellas, ask me next time, would you? And so anyway, but it's just this tenacious, aggressive warfare language, right? Faith literally has the ability to go into enemy-occupied territory and plant the Lord's banner and say, this is mine. Faith can do this. And Jesus understands that. This is why sickness doesn't stand a chance in the presence of Jesus. This is why death does not keep people in the presence of Jesus. And this is why he says nothing will be impossible for you. Faith is literally meant to tear down every obstacle. And I think it's amazing. Now, does that mean we're always going to get what I want? No, we'd be monsters if that were the case. Can you imagine? 
The point is, faith is based upon what the Word of God says. You with me? It's believing what the Word of God says and relying upon the Word of God only to do what it says. All right, so let's go to our first journey. That's kind of our preface. Go to Matthew chapter 8. So after those first scandal things, scandalous things that happens in Matthew chapter 8, look at this. Matthew 8, beginning of verse 23. A tale of two journeys. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. Now when Jesus got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But what was he doing? He was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. This actually, these are the first words we hear from the 12 disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. How's that for an introduction? Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be so that even the winds and the sea obey him? And if you're paying attention, some stuff should stand out here. Here's the first one. Jesus rebukes the disciples before he rebukes the wind and the waves. They're in the midst of chaos. There's a problem going on. And he's more concerned about the non-faith of these people, the unbelief of his people, than he is about what's going on around him. You're going to wake me up for this? Guys, they're in the boat next to Jesus. And they think they're going to die? And we laugh. But many of us do the exact same thing. We're next to Jesus in the midst of our chaos. And we lose sight of all of it. Because we're taking our eyes off of Jesus and looking at the things that are going on around us. But it says in John chapter 16 and verse 33 that these things I've said to you, that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus never promised smooth sailing, pun intended. Right? But he did promise to be our rock, our mighty rock, right? So he says, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Beloved, if Jesus can overcome the world, he can overcome whatever storm you're dealing with today. Amen? And so he's, he's upset with them. They've not learned the lesson on faith, have they? They, they didn't read the book by Jones and Wagner, apparently. <laughs> They're still exhibiting spiritual poverty. They're lacking faith. And they don't know who this is. They literally say, who is this man? Who is this guy? They're in the boat next to Jesus, and they have no idea who this man is. No clue. Fascinating to me. So the disciples are in a boat with Jesus. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and remember these details. They're heading what direction? East. They say, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And then he rebukes the disciples before solving the problem. And lastly, they say, who could this be that even the winds and the waves obey him? They don't know who he is. Let's go to our second journey. Matthew chapter 14. It's Matthew 8. Go to Matthew chapter 14. So the background for this, Jesus has worked a huge miracle in John's account. It makes more details prevalent. Works this massive miracle, feeding the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, in John's account, we're told that literally people are... are con- I was going to create a word. Can I just do it anyway? 
conspiracy sizing? I don't even know what that means. They were, they were forming a conspiracy. Um, when you preach like 10 times in a few days, stuff happens. Um, you're getting the dregs at this stage. So anyway, they, they're forming this conspiracy that they're going to make Jesus king by force. We've got a great idea. Let's just take this guy and by force, we're going to make Jesus king. You know what Jesus says? He tells the disciples, leave. Get out of here. He's upset. And he tells the disciples to leave, and they get in a boat by themselves. Jesus goes up, and he wrestles with his father in prayer all night. And this is kind of our context from Matthew chapter 14, beginning of verse 24. Uh, yeah. Well, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. So Jesus says, go for it, big boy, come. And when Peter got down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now we just need to stop here. Has anyone here ever done that? Just, just curious, just doing a survey here. Anyone here ever walked on water? Okay. I have another question for you. Is this necessary? This man is in a perfectly good boat. Do you know what that tells me? If Peter is willing to muster even a small amount of faith, Jesus is willing to meet him where he is. Amen? There's no reason for him to get out of this boat. It's perfectly fine. But if this guy's going to muster even a small amount of faith, I'm going to honor it and meet him where he is. Go ahead. And Jesus strengthens Peter's faith by him actually walking on water. But there's a problem. The story doesn't end here. For Peter's sake, I'm sure he wished that it did. Verse 29, so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, what? Lord, save me. Have we heard this before? Hmm. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You know, Peter believed in Jesus' ability to keep him from drowning in the beginning. He believed that. But when tempest came into his life... He lost faith in Jesus' ability to keep him that way. You ever been there? I believe Jesus can do anything when I first say yes to him. But then stuff happens. Anyone here ever gone through some stuff? And in that stuff, we lose sight of everything. We lose sight of Jesus. We freak out and we lose a blessing. The disciples are in a boat. This is the second journey. They're on the Sea of Galilee again. This time they're headed west. They're moving in the opposite direction. 
we see, Lord, save me again. But this time, Jesus solves the problem before he rebukes Peter. And it ends by them saying, truly, you are the son of God. Two similar journeys with two opposite results. I believe the reason and the big variable difference in this equation is faith. Because Peter was at least willing to exhibit a small amount of faith, Jesus fixes the problem first and then rebukes him for his unbelief. And in this situation, the people realize this man is the guy. Jesus is the one. But this can happen to us, can't it? It's actually possible to be right next to Jesus and to fear for your life. And many of our people are in that experience right now. We're a Seventh-day Adventist in good standing. We pay a faithful tithe. We have worship with our children. We love God. And yet our lives are still filled with fear, lack of security, lack of assurance. It's possible, isn't it? To be right next to Jesus and to have no peace in your life. It's convicting, isn't it? We have two more journeys. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And beginning of verse 29. Jesus is now nailed to the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 29. Actually, 27. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on the left, so that the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These are just passers-by. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Then it says, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Random citizens, religious leadership, and the people who were crucified next to Jesus, all of them are heaping scorn and unbelief in the face of Jesus. While witnessing the greatest event the universe has ever seen or will ever see. And these are all people who should know better. These are all people who are looking for the Messiah. Let's skip a few verses down and see the second journey. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said... Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there is a stark, stark contrast here, is there not? Let's see what Ellen White says about this. In the closing events of the crucifixion day, fresh evidence was given of the fulfillment of prophecy. And new witness born to Christ's divinity. When the darkness had lifted from the cross and the Savior's dying cry had been uttered, immediately another voice was heard saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Put yourself there, would you? 
I'm not going to ask you to put on your imagination caps or your thinking caps, but just put yourself in the situation. It looks like midnight, even though it's noonday. Desire of Ages 753 tells us the reason why. God Almighty is on earth with every one of the angels of heaven, and they're enshrouded in clouds to protect the wicked and all humans from being destroyed as they're ministering with the ministry of presence beside the sun. While the sun is none the wiser, because Satan has cast an impenetrable cloud of darkness in the heart and mind of Jesus. It is a dark, spooky, eerie scene. Everyone has ceased their jeering at this stage when Jesus utters his last words. The earth itself freaks out at the death of Jesus. There's an earthquake. The temple is shaken. The veil in the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom, making it clear that no human hands were involved. And in the midst of this spooky, scary, and silent scene, Someone awkwardly breaks into this silence by shouting, Truly, this man was the Son of God. He has everyone's attention. This is what she says. These words were said in no whispered tones, and all eyes turned to see whence they came. Who had spoken? And it's not who anyone would expect. It was a centurion. The Roman soldier, the divine patience of the Savior and his sudden death with the cry of victory upon his lips had impressed this heathen. In the bruised, broken body hanging upon the cross, the centurion recognized the form of the Son of God. Was that because it was in the inspired writings of the Romans? No, you can't encounter Jesus and not know. You cannot have an encounter with the living Christ and not know. Nebuchadnezzar knew. There's a fourth man in that fire, and it's the Son of God. People just know. They just know. He could not refrain from confessing his, his faith. Thus again, evidence was given that our Redeemer was to see the travail of his soul. The Andrew Study Bible will comment on this. They say, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, somebody other than Jesus himself, and a Gentile at that, correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of God that's announced in the prologue. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then they say this, It is only in the light of the cross that the true identity of Jesus may be understood. He's the Messiah, the royal Son of God, the Savior of all. So here's my question for you this morning. Have you seen that hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel? Or based upon your lack of faith and your unbelief, does he look like a defeated king who can't even save himself, let alone you? What do you see when you see the cross of Jesus? Because for many of us, this thing has been so commercialized that as Paul says, the cross has been emptied of its power. And we ourselves, as people of the book, find ourselves staring at this event with the same amount of ambivalence as the people in the community, as the priests, and as the people crucified right beside Jesus. It does nothing for our hearts. It's possible to be at the cross of Jesus, the event that's radically changed the landscape of the entire world, and to have that do nothing for you. 
It's possible. Some of us are living that experience right now. The cross of Jesus does nothing for me when I hear about it. It's because we're not being told what the cross actually is in explaining it. We just read through the Bible and say, oh yeah, the, the crucifixion. Anyway, moving on now. And we don't even stop and appreciate what is happening. And then lo and behold, foreigners get more of a blessing out of this event than we do. What do you see and what do you think whenever the cross event comes to mind? And if it doesn't do something for you, you know what the beautiful thing is? You can ask Jesus to make this thing matter to you. Jesus, I freely confess, the cross does not stir me. The cross is not affecting me deep in the psyche. I read it like any other historical event. Somebody died. Happens to be Jesus. That benefits me in some form or fashion, but it just doesn't do anything for me. You literally can ask Jesus to make this event come alive and to have it radically transform and define your life. July 5th, 2014, I encountered somebody preaching the cross in a way I had never heard in my life. And it rocked me. I've never forgotten it. There was not a dry eye in that house. And all this man did was go from Gethsemane through the cross. Using the, using the testimonies, using Desire of Ages, using the Gospels, using the Old Testament Scriptures. Just walking through chronologically what this experience was for Jesus. And the weight of the sin of the world. We talked about this last year at GYC Northwest, Sabbath morning, for Sabbath school. And it rocked me. And I made a vow that day, July 5th, 2014. I will never commit the sin of not preaching that ever again. Never again. I knew it. That's it. That's what the disciples were preaching. And what rocked a city. That's what the Apostle Paul was preaching and shook people to their core. And yet we live in an environment right now in Adventism in which 3ABN's pastoral department is getting alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have zero assurance of salvation. That's a true story. They're also getting an equally alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults who are sure that they're saved because of what they do. Oh dear. There's an existential crisis happening, and it seems like no one is the wiser. Our movement was pre-programmed and prophetically ordained to bring the everlasting gospel to the world. And it's like we've been immunized and it does nothing for us. We're not hearing it. When we read it, it doesn't do anything for us. And in turn, the world goes unwarned and unreached. This is not acceptable. The fact that we are still here should cause every Seventh-day Adventist to be convicted. The fact that Jesus has not come should cause every Seventh-day Adventist to feel a sense of accountability for this event. We should be home by now. And the Spirit of God was falling in power. We're even told the latter rain was falling in Adventism in 1889, 
93. Most of our people don't even know this is the case. It was happening. And we went to war against the gospel. And we won. And the gospel didn't. And we're still here. That should trouble you. That should startle you. And it should motivate you to do something about it. It frustrates me. It sours my stomach. We have a call, guys. A big one. A beautiful one. And it's a privilege. If you don't know the history, you can get it for free online in audiobook form, ellawhiteaudio.org. It's called Return to the Latter Rain, Volume 1. Read it. Listen to it. All the history is there. That message is coming back. And we will go home. And what you're beginning to experience and witness this week is the little drippy drop of that message. It's just a taste. We're starting to wrap our mind around it. We're getting there. But we're not home yet. But I want you to know that I'm proud of this organization for being willing to let this message be preached. And I've seen it in your eyes. I've heard it in your voice and your testimonials. Something is happening here. Something real. Something tangible. Chains are being broken in people's experiences. People are finding freedom and a better understanding and appreciation of what Adventism was meant to be. It's starting. What are you going to do about that? Will you grab the baton and finish this race? Or are you to wait for somebody else? Are you with me? The gospel works, guys. It does work. And if the gospel doesn't do anything for you right now, you can ask Jesus to do something about that. Jesus, I'm not going to give you rest until this thing comes alive. I'm going to keep reading this story. Hey, maybe this is why Ellen White said we should spend a thoughtful hour, how often? Every day, reflecting upon the life of Christ, but particularly what? The closing scenes. And yet you would be hard-pressed to find that story being told from one of your pulpits one out of 52 weeks a year. That's a problem. That's a big problem. If we're told to read that story every day, isn't that going to get old? Apparently not. Apparently you're going to keep finding beauty and power in this message. So why don't we commit to that? Maybe you can start with that. Because you can't give what you don't have. And if it's not there yet, ask Jesus to do something about that and tell him, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want this thing to change my life, Jesus. I get it now. I understand this must be important. Jesus, please do something about this. I want you to raise me from the dead. Do you think he will? 100%. Beloved, the great controversy between Christ and Satan is not theology. It's not. And it's not a book by Ellen White. It's the most profound reality of your life, and it requires action. You live on a battlefield. This thing is real. And Satan has been working overtime to suppress the gospel. And at times, we have been some of his greatest allies in that battle. But that's going to change. 
It will change. Fully believe it. We will live up to our potential as a movement. But will you be involved in that? Are you going to wait for the movement to move? Or are you going to be the movement? And this is a convicting statement for me to think about. But I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. We're told in Desire of Ages this. Do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will, your power of choice on the side of Christ. Will to serve him and in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. That's a guarantee. If Jesus is saying that this gospel of a suffering Messiah has to go to the world, then I'm going to do something about it if no one goes with me. If no one in my church has given Bible studies on this to our community, I'll give Bible studies to my community. If no one else is preaching this message, I'll preach this message. And it's not because people are militantly against it near as much as we would assume. We just don't know. There's just this massive ignorance in our movement of understanding the history, the message. And so if you're starting to get it, you can be that catalyst for change in your local church. But you better be a person of peace when you're bringing this movement into your church. If you go home with a spirit of militancy and set the curtains on fire, that is not the spirit of the most precious message. And shame on you. You're making my job harder. And you're making our jobs harder. Because people assume that people that believe in righteousness by faith look like these beasts. And Satan delights to see it so. The message should transform not only what you believe, but how you share, how you do life. It should be good leaven in the lump. You should be a person extending the same mercy that Jesus extended to you. It'll cause you to not forget where you came from. Will to serve him and in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which their long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and he longs to deliver. Amen? Amen. Um... I'll close with this thought. I have come to realize that there is a horrible and egregious sin living in my life. It's the sin of unbelief. I don't believe the things about me that God believes. I wish I did. We're getting there. But we're not there yet. Because if I believe the things about me that God believed, I wouldn't be what I am right now. And I want God to plant that banner in that enemy territory in my heart today. I want him to claim that territory as his, the area of unbelief. I want to believe what Jesus believes. I want to live as if the gospel is actually true. How about you? We'll close with the story. Two weeks ago, I was in Orlando, Florida, telling this story, and it was really awkward, and I'll tell you why. So I was doing Bible work in a church in Tennessee, and there was a guy who was there, who's a church member, who's a retired conference president. His name is Chuck. And so someone was preaching at this meeting uh, with me two weeks ago in Orlando, and I was vaguely remembering that this person knew Chuck. And so I says, you know, do you know Chuck? And I said, you know, so this, there's a guy you used to go to church with. There's a conference president named Chuck Case. And I said, do you know him? And I point to this guy. This is a woman. Um, 
just, just so you know, uh, and just so you know that I know. And so I point to this guy, Bill, and I says, Bill, I didn't say Bill, but I said, you know, do you know Chuck, right? And the guy next to him says, yeah, that's my dad. I said, oh, snap, I hope I tell the story right, because this, this has never happened. But just imagine you're using someone's story as an illustration in your sermon, and their son is staring right at you. It was weird. I've never had that happen in my life. I nearly crumpled over. And, but it's a good story, so, and I, I did do it right. Hallelujah. So Chuck tells the story. He's preaching one Sabbath, and the sermon was called A Love Relationship with Jesus. I'm down for that, so I listened. I would have listened anyway. He's a good dude. And so Chuck's telling the story, and he gets to the point where he starts telling the story about him and his wife. So they're courting. This is back at La Sierra many years ago. Many, many years ago. And they're courting, and he's in the car, and he finally musters the guts. And he says, Millie, I love you. You know what she says? Well, I don't love you. Gunned him down, boy. Shots fired. But just like Jesus in Isaiah chapter 42, he would not fail nor be discouraged. Amen? (laughs) And she still wants to be with this guy. They keep courting. They keep doing their thing. You know, if she didn't want to be with that guy and he kept following around, that'd be creepy. But she wanted to be there. And some time goes by. And I guess at that stage, uh, the, the dormitory for the girls was connected to the hospital. She's studying nursing. And so anyway, he meets her in the lobby of the girls' dormitory. And she says, Chuck, we need to talk. She pulls him off into a room. She wraps her arms around him and she says, Chuck, I love you. I love you. And then she says, what are you going to do with my love? You know what Chuck said? And then I asked his son, what did he say? Marry it. They've been married for 63 years in ministry together. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And, but their story, I think, is very poignant for what we've been talking about all over the course of this week. Through the messages that you've been hearing, have you come to see that God loves you this week? Yes or no? You sound convinced. Praise the Lord. My question to you is, what are you going to do with that love? What are you going to do with it? Lord Jesus, I hope so. Great answer. That's the point. Are we going to do what the Jewish nation did and sequester themselves off and think that everybody else has cooties? Or are we going to be that good leaven in the lump in our local church? Just winsome, gospel-loving, Jesus-loving individuals who are uplifting a message that is biblical and beautiful. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what he needs. He doesn't need people like Peter lopping folks' ear offs, right? He doesn't need people lopping off Malchus's ear in the name of the most precious message. He's telling you to put your sword in its place just like he did Peter. I don't need your violence to advance my kingdom. I'm giving myself for them, Peter. This message permeates and is a blessing when it's through giving, not taking. It's the glory of God to give. And so this is something that we need to take very, very, very seriously. If we don't understand this most precious message, there are resources. You can read lessons on faith. Right? You can read what Ellen White says about what took place. You can read the actual history. You can read the General Conference sermons that A.T. Jones preached in 1893, the Three Angels' Messages. 
You can begin a process reading the desire of ages and steps to Christ and better understanding what it is that God wants us to believe about himself and the picture of Jesus that has to be given to the world for Revelation 18 to be fulfilled. It's going to be a revelation of the character of God. And the character of God that we're communicating to the world is not sinlessness, it's selflessness. Sin cannot live in that environment. Uplifting the beautiful message of the third angel's message, the message of Christ our righteousness. Ellen White says that Revelation 18, the loud cry, is a repetition of the third angel's message. Given with a loud cry. Take the time to study the third angel's message. Wrap your mind around it. What does she say about it? Who does she say was preaching it? What should you do about it? W.W. Prescott went down to Armadale, Australia. Ellen White clamored for a long time, please send Prescott. They finally let him go. The general conference finally let him go. And when he goes down and preaches there, the people in Australia thought, all we're going to hear from these Adventist people is Moses and Sinai. That's all we're going to hear from these people, a bunch of legalists. But Prescott starts preaching. And what Ella White says is not one of those sermons would I consider to be a quote-unquote doctrinal discourse. Then you start to get concerned. What is this, new theology? But then she starts talking about what he was sharing. The Sabbath, the law, the nature of God, the nature of man, creation. Wait a minute, that's our message. Yeah, but they didn't feel like doctrinal messages. She said they came across as gospel messages. And the people started getting transcripts of the messages while they were being preached. You can get the book of this. The Adventist Pioneer Library has it. It's called In the Spirit's Power, W.W. Prescott. Read those messages. She endorsed that method of public evangelism and said, this is the way we should do our meetings going forward. Unfortunately, we haven't. Most of us. But that's the model she endorsed. So Prescott's preaching these messages, preaching his guts out. And Ellen White, you should just, even if you just read the beginning of the book, the preface, on all the comments that Ellen White made about the Armadale meetings, it will convince you to read the book. I've never seen her say stuff like this. She says, all of our messages should be this way. She said, strangers would come up on the grounds, they would hear what uh, W.W. Prescott preach, and their faces would turn pale. And they said, this man is inspired. And they said, we have never heard someone preach Jesus like this. We've never heard it. Look into the pioneer writings. Look to see what these people were saying, what they were preaching. Ellen White was endorsing what was being preached. So what was it? Let's find out. Let's self-study and let's share this message with beauty, with tact, and in a winsome spirit. Amen? Amen. Something is happening here that can radically and dramatically change the landscape of Adventism. It can. You're seeing the gospel works. The gospel makes sense. It transforms the life. It's setting people free. Just imagine if we better understood it and if all of us decided to take this thing seriously and take it to the world. I want to go home. And Jesus longs to come back, but he needs us, guys. Jesus not only loves you, Jesus not only believes in you, Jesus needs you. The harvest is plentiful. People are pre-programmed to receive the gospel. But someone has to tell them. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they know unless they're told? And who's going to tell them unless someone sends them? So we'll send you. In the name of Jesus Christ, go forward, making disciples, teaching them about this most precious message, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and continuing to invest in them and grow them. You can do that. Amen?
And Jesus is proud of you. He's so proud of you. Let's pray. God in heaven, you know that we have a need. And we've come to find this week that that need is found in Jesus. Our high priest, our best friend, our husband. Lord, I pray that we would better appreciate the beautiful message of the gospel that you have given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and that we would preach it with power to the world. This call is not a call to abandon our fundamental beliefs, the principles of the Adventist message. It's to saturate those beliefs with the cross of Christ. We're told that each one of those beliefs find their power in correlation to this theme, the theme of the cross. So Lord, I pray that you would use us that we would take the study of the most precious message seriously. And Lord, we've said today we want to do that. I myself want to better understand this message so that we can give glory to God on high and present this beautiful picture of God to the surrounding nations. I pray that we would no longer be a means of the world blaspheming the name of God by our bad example and our Christless approach. Not all of us. But it does happen. And Lord, I pray that you would just make us into winsome, gospel-preaching, Adventist message-loving missionaries who communicate this to the world. We love the health message. We love the messages of reform you gave to this movement to draw us closer to yourself. We love the three angels' messages, the Sabbath, the state of the dead. We love them all, Lord. They're all supposed to teach us something about you. Help us to see that in the Adventist message. Help us to fall in love with it and to be even more effective missionaries, we pray. Lord, forgive our sins of unbelief. Forgive my sin of unbelief, of limiting you, of causing you to cry because of my unbelief. And Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would send the Holy Spirit in great, great measure, that the latter rain would again fall in this movement, and that we would embrace it, that it would take the world by storm, And that the world would see a picture of God that is irresistible. And that you could come home and finally have that bride that you so desperately want. And I pray that when you come, Lord Jesus, that every person in this room would have a lamp burning in their windowsill. That you would receive the fruit of your sufferings. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We ask these things now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.